Today's show is about the relationships between parents and children. Aspirations, inspiration, dreaming, disappointment. My dad often disappointed me. He was a Jekyll and Hyde. When he was sober and healthy, you couldn't find a better human being. You couldn't find a son more proud of how he approached life and how he cared for others. He could converse in English or French and with a CEO or janitor. He cared for both equally. I remember a kid in our neighborhood, Charlie, had an intellectual disability and was often bullied for it. My dad would knock on his parents' door, ask if Charlie wanted to go for a walk, and off they'd go to the shopping center for a soft drink and a hamburger. My happiest memory of my dad as a kid was camping with him in the fall. We built a lean-to, had two summer sleeping bags, and that night it snowed. But he lit a fire and kept it going all night. But he wasn't mentally healthy. Today they call it bipolar. Back then it was manic-depressive. And when his brain would short-circuit, my dad would self-medicate with alcohol. He'd spend and gamble money that we didn't have. But he'd think nothing of coming home in the middle of the night and walking the streets screaming profanities at our neighbors or bringing that verbal abuse home within our four walls. This might sound a little morbid, but I have to say that one of my happiest moments is realizing that as he died, he had found a way to arrest his demons, and he died with the love of my sisters, me, and my grandchildren. What I've come to regret is that I never really thought about mental illness. I was a victim. My family was a victim. We never tried to understand what was tearing at him. I never sat down and talked and asked him how hard he was trying to fight it. I remember him telling me about lithium, the drug they put him on. He said it was like a horse tranquilizer. He felt nothing, no highs or no lows. So for the people out there that if you have parents or you have children, don't be afraid to communicate. Don't be afraid to share and get beneath the surface and maybe surrender your feelings for a moment to try to understand theirs. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guests today are a father and son. Now, this show's not about mental health or substance abuse, but it does focus on relationships, conversations, masculinity, chasing society stereotypes, and a son who had to come out and tell his dad, this dashing and acclaimed television journalist, that he was gay. You expect the news first and foremost from us, so let's tell you what's happening on this Friday first. The smoke. Kevin Newman is one of Canada's most acclaimed journalists. I've had him on Chatter That Matters before. It's one of my most listened to interviews of all time. If you haven't heard it, it's a fantastic portrayal of someone whose career trajectory is like a rocket, taken to the epicenter of news in New York. But the fuel he burns chasing fame and acclaim is fuel he's stolen from time away from his family. I remember him coming through the door and I had this moment of, oh, there's this guy, this is relative, it's, it's dad, and, uh, but I didn't understand that he was my father. I didn't, I didn't have the closeness with him that the other kids in the neighborhood did. His son Alex Newman makes his living within the world of creative expression. He's based in Australia. In a world where humans drink content from a firehouse, Alex finds a way to engage audiences. And in 2015, they penned All Out, an enlightening shared memoir about their complicated, sometimes contentious relationship as father and son. Alex and Kevin, welcome to Chat It Matters. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. What we're talking about is a book that you wrote in 2015, really about relationships. And I want to just actually begin by going back to sort of what led 
to the two of you deciding that maybe a combination of sharing is caring, a memoir therapy that gave you the impetus to do something that might have sounded great over a beer, but actually turned into this long labor of love, sometimes independent and sometimes where the tracks had to come together. It, it started with reporting. I was doing a, a story for W5 on a young uh, hockey player in Ottawa. Uh, who is gay and a goalie. And uh, I had approached the uh, executive editor at that time and said, you know, it would be really cool if we could look at this issue through the through the lens of a family. And so I was sitting talking to this kid's uh, dad and talking to his mom and talking to him and suddenly realized that I was asking the kinds of questions I hadn't asked my own son or myself. And so it was that epiphany. I remember I came home and I, I talked to Alex about it and I talked to the rest of the family and I said, you know, Maybe we should write about this. Maybe we should, you know, contribute to this. And that sort of began uh, the process of um, finding someone to help us write it and also uh, finding somebody who would publish it. But Alex, I really was moved when you had a paragraph in one of your interviews where you said, my dad kind of knew I liked cars. My mom knew what brand I loved. And I thought that was a real statement of the father out there or it could be the mother building the career and consumed by it. But the fuel that you put in there is fuel you're taking away in terms of time with your family. Growing up, was it Kevin Newman, the journalist, or was it my dad, or was it a common, two very different people? I mean, I think there's there's some people that look at others on television and either idolize or put them on a pedestal. But no, dad was still dad. But um, I think the the biggest, I guess, understanding from that point of view when I was young, and I still can't believe I sort of thought that way at, at that age, but I understood that what dad was doing that took him away from the family was incredibly important, that people were listening to him, that the things that he was going out to do uh, meant a lot. And Alex, one of the currents that's happening in the book is that you're going through this sort of time as a young man trying to understand your sexuality and trying to understand where you're heading in life. And I guess that has to eventually ladder into conversations with people to try to help you come to terms with it. Share with us that, because it, I think that Hollywood kind of portrays that moment as it just happens or it was I knew it exactly what I was at age three. But I really I think it's important that people kind of understand that that's not always as black and white as it seems. And it has a lot of self-reflection and times to really sort of think through who you are. Absolutely. And it, the coming out experience is different for many people. Some people say they've known their entire lives who they truly were. Um, for me, it was a bit more obscure. I think that as I was growing up, there was a certain expectation of the way men are supposed to be. I was, you know, raised in a Disney world where, you know, you find the princess, you have a sort of uh, a demeanor about you to the opposite sex, you have to care for them, save them. And so you're sort of trained from that from the moment that you're born, you're put in a blue or a pink blanket, um, you're kind of set in this motion. So for some people, including myself, uh, I had to kind of discover uh, who I was. It wasn't immediately clear. And I had inklings of it as I was a child. But I think as I reached um, sort of puberty and uh, into my teen years, the inklings turned to desires, which were almost uh, not ignorable. But I didn't feel like I was at a point where I could proclaim that this is who I am. I needed to sort of experiment with it um, and kind of break it down and see, all right, is this desire that I have just a fleeting consideration? Is it just something I need to try out and then it will go away? Um, and as I sort of stepped into that world of, okay, maybe I can, you know, go to a chat room was sort of my first step and find other um, gay men that, you know, had some information to share on this and maybe we can connect. And that's felt really safe because the people were anonymous and it allowed me to kind of explore 
at least in text behind a computer, who I might be. And that just dug the queries of, of about myself even deeper. And I'm like, no, it needs to sort of go to the next level. And um, I was chatting with a good friend of mine on, uh, on MSN Messenger, and the conversation started to shift towards uh, sexuality. And actually, in chapter 12 of All Out, um, I took excerpts from that conversation we had and literally, literally put them into the book because it was the first time that I was uh, having these admissions to somebody I knew in my life that had consequence that it wasn't just sort of uh, chatting with random people online. It was, okay, if I tell these, this person how I'm feeling, the cat's going to start to get out of the bag and I'm going to need to sort of, at the time it was manage the damage to my reputation. And I feel like that sentiment's very different now, but that's very much how it felt to me. And Kevin, you talked about, you know, and we're going to get into a little bit of your career because there's some some interesting aspects that came out when I read the book, but you started to get a better feeling that this was happening when you you two went on a trip to Japan. Is that right? You know, Alex was a, very much a, a typical teenage boy and that at about 14, he clammed up and he started uh, going into his bedroom and uh, less communication. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I recognized the behavior because I had done something very similar. And when he was, I guess, about 17, Alex, I guess, um, I thought, well, how am I going to reach this guy? Because I just, we, we don't have much communication going on. So he was um, particularly adept at um, Japanese and really, really took to it in his school in Vancouver. So I thought, well, I'll take him to Japan. Two reasons. One was I'd never been. And the biggest reason was he would be in a position of leadership. He, he would be more comfortable. I would be more awkward. And I could perhaps get him to open up by being my guide to the place. And so, and I also set us up for like, remember Alex, we visited at an anime museum because you were in an anime at the time and uh, it didn't work. <laughs> it was awkward. Um, I mean, I love the time. It was great to be with him. But there was there was one moment we were in a, a small town and I thought we'd try to, um, you know, go our separate ways for a little bit. But as many parents do, I kind of used it as an excuse to spy on his behavior. So he was walking Always around. a reporter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or, or the, just the bad parent. Um but anyway, so he was walking through the town and the Japanese uh, young girls were quite interested in him. I mean, good looking guy, blonde hair, uh, young, and, um, and he didn't recognize it. He didn't spot it. He didn't, he didn't sense it. And, and that was the moment that I thought, Oh, hmm, that's interesting. He's not, he's not picking up on, on the attention that he's getting from women. And, um, and then I went, I went home after that and I did discuss it with my wife, Kathy, at that point. And I said, you know, something we want to might want to consider is that Alex might be gay, but then um, nothing much came out of it. I didn't um, I didn't pursue it with Alex uh, at that time, obviously, but um, but it was it was sort of out there, and it was just something that I wondered about. One of the motivations you had, because I was reading one of the interviews that you did and saying I just didn't have any tools. I didn't know I didn't know where you know Alex goes to chat rooms to try to understand who he is. You're as a father saying, if this is happening, where do I go to get some kind of guidance? Well, the answer is nowhere because you can't out your own child. And so you have no one to talk to about it. I think it's still very much like that. Many of my friends now have kids who are uh, fluid or uh, considering uh, being considering their transgender uh, process. Uh, many have kids who are gay, but at that time, um, not many parents talked about it, and especially fathers. And and that was that was the piece that I felt very alone with, uh, in much the same way as Alex, you know, felt alone in his real world, not his virtual world. I I 
I felt alone in both. And so, you know, I did do a little reading in advance and, and thought about it. And, you know, if Alex did come out, how I would um, talk about it. But um, even after he came out and we went to the school and we went to the school board and we, you know, we wanted to be involved. We wanted to figure out how, what role we could play, what role the school could play. There was absolutely nothing. They were they were forbidden uh, in Vancouver, which is a very progressive city. The school board and the teachers were forbidden to to talk about it or address it. Yeah, there was remarkably little information on my end as well as a student. I remember um, in sexual education, we had this massive textbook, and it was obviously quite you know scientific in its breakdown. But there was just one small paragraph about male homosexuality, and it described. Um, gay men as uh, men who prefer the aroma of other men's musk and it just it disgusted me as a young man so much that it actually sort of threw me off and I'm like well that's not my definition and like that that I couldn't possibly be a part of that and there was just nothing more to it even just from an educational point of view um, so yeah it did felt it felt alone I think on 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 both ends you're listening to chatter that matters with Tony Chapman Presented by RBC. All the expectations landed on Alex's shoulders. He was also the first child. You know, if you were bullied as a kid, you tried to stop me from being bullied as a kid or have friends that are into sports. And so you would project onto me, hey, maybe you should try sports. But I interpreted it as dad doesn't get me. My guest today is Kevin Newman. You'd know him from Good Morning America, Global News. He's one of Canada's most acclaimed journalists. And his brilliant and creative son, Alex Newman, who now has his own agency in Australia. Tell me a little bit about you growing up and what you were like in, in your relationship with your sister and stuff, because I'm just, I'm always fascinated by all the different pieces that come together to who you are now, the successful entrepreneur in Australia with your own agency. So just give me a sense of you as a youth and what made you like fall in, was creativity an escape for you? Or is it something you just preferred to do versus what was considered the norm? Starting from the book, I think the the topic that it discusses is my sexuality in part. Um, but I think the, the more important piece that was discussed is masculinity. I think there is so much conversation about masculinity these days. Is it toxic? Is it too much? Is masculinity actually being embracing your femininity? Just speaking from my experience that masculinity was never something that was just inherent. It was something that I had to think about even from a very young age. And I was very aware of how I'm standing, how I'm gesturing, how I'm talking. I took on things like uh, the gym because I needed to look masculine. The way that I wanted to portray myself was very conscious. Um, and that's not necessarily the the same for, for other men. I think it, masculinity is just sort of an inherent way that they behave or position themselves in the world. But since then, I'm just more confident to be myself and not over overthink it. And, you know, if that means that uh, people perceive me one way or the other, I, I start to care a little bit less. I'm always interested in the circumstances. And I find that a lot of the guests I've interviewed over time really find something, a calling, a purpose or something in not always a great thing. It's, it's almost like a gift within a situation. And I was just curious about, you know, your love for creativity. When I first met you, you know, you're doing this crazy data visualization. You, you work for some of the big agencies. You're doing your own thing now. And I was just curious as a youth, where did that come from? Creativity. I, I was very, had a very active imagination and, um, definitely lose attention in things like sports games where I would just sort of go off into my own fantasy world. And I think that was very much um, where I felt safe. And my mom was very instrumental in nurturing that sort of creative space and 
making sure that it felt safe, that it didn't matter that I was holed up in my room for several hours playing with Lego or, or sketching something random. It was, it, it was something that she, she wanted me to do. And it was something like an outlet that um, allowed me to just self-express without any um, judgment, which is ironic going into advertising because I feel like all creativity is then thus judged. So <laughs> definitely have to build a tough skin for that. <laughs> you, you picked the wrong, you picked the wrong profession for that. Kevin, I want to go to you. And, um, you know, it's interesting that you've got Alex sort of chasing these masculine stereotypes trying to go out. in the same way in your career, when I read about and talked to you, you look at this, you like this swashbuckling, you're fit, you're, uh, you know, so confident. But as they started reading behind it, I mean, the entire toxic news industry was kind of tearing at you and making you feel like a, an imposter versus where you should have been thought of as someone that left sort of the, Canadian news and went to the epicenter of news when you went to Good Morning America. And I'd love to, d- to share that time. And then I have a, another question I want to ask afterwards about the, the morning show. Yeah, I mean, as Alex is talking about um, defining his masculinity and defining himself by observation and being very intentional about it, um, one of the things that I think I discovered in writing the book with Alex was that we shared that experience. Mine was I grew up in a family without my dad, I was not close to. I had a stepfather who was an alcoholic. I had, uh, you know, a mother, two sisters, two female dogs, and a grandmother. My self-learning about uh, masculine traits has been very much like Alex's. How am I going to act? How am I going to walk? And and in America, there's one little extra piece, and that's that you have to export that personality. And that was something that I I didn't recognize. I thought that in a sort of a Canadian way – that if you could convince yourself that you're good at what you do and you're pleasant, uh, then that's enough. But there's that little extra bit of exportation uh, that happens, especially on American television, that you have to not only believe you're good, but you have to show that you're good. And I found that hard. And then the other piece was um, I wasn't prepared for the cultural difference because I had to not only move to America, I had to interpret America for Americans. I think as Canadians... We assume we understand the American psyche because we're so close to it. We're inundated with media, but we don't. And the triggers that are cultural moments in America um, surprised me. And especially because racism is such a strong uh, thread through their history. Not that it doesn't exist in Canada, but they fought wars over it. I felt like an imposter myself. I felt... Uh, I would always remind the audience that I was Canadian because there were a, a few moments that things just wouldn't trigger. I... Not a big baseball fan, you know, grew up with hockey. Um, there were certain words that I said, like toboggan, which they had no idea what a toboggan was. I think it made it um, extra hard when things started to go badly for me. I mean, I had a great run there over eight years, but I had a, uh, a period when I was co-hosting Good Morning America that was not great and very short and very intense and very cruel in its way. But you were bullied. I mean, I mean, you talked about it almost in a jokingly manner, but, you know, hair, you know, the eyebrow colors and different glasses and stuff. But to me, that's a form of bullying, isn't it? Where they're using their power of the network and your, you know, desire to hold on to the job. It's a hell of an environment. I mean, you know, it's the most competitive media environment in television, I would say, in the world. If the leadership at the time doesn't know what's wrong with the show, then it lands on your shoulders. So they do things like dye your eyelashes because we can't see your eyes properly through the glasses. Wear your glasses. Don't wear your glasses. And so all those kinds of things uh, when you're already feeling 
um, unsure of yourself don't help. Alex, I want to come back to you now. So what was it like telling your dad who, you know, was your dad, not the, the acclaimed journalist? Was Kevin the first one to know? Or was it your mom that when you decided to come out and just say, I, I've really got more clarity now? It was actually my sister picking her up from school. Uh, I was driving back home and pulled over to the side and told her, and I don't think she knew what to do. Um, I've always been the the tough, angsty brother that's now crying in the driver's seat and she didn't know um, how to sort of navigate the situation. But she was so respectful and she stayed, uh, uh, she kept it confidential up until um, I was ready to talk about it later that night. And uh, I knew I couldn't have her hold on to it for too long. So, you know, I needed to, to bring everyone together. But I wanted everyone to know at the same time. And so dad was always really good at calling family meetings when there was something important to talk about, whether that was moving to the US or <laughs> moving back to Canada. So I asked to have one after dinner and uh, we all sat down in the lounge room and I actually couldn't say the words because I knew there was sort of no coming back from telling your family that you're gay. Dad took a, a strong step forward and <clears throat> asked me, is this about your sexuality? And um, I, I nodded. I, I was like, yeah, this, this is. And cried pretty hard because this is the first point, I think, when uh, a, a child has something to tell the parents about themselves that up until then, the parents sort of lead your growth and sort of are the the ones that tell you how the world works. And this was a moment where I said, actually, that birds and the bees talk you had means nothing to me. <laughs> it's very much different, particularly also on a topic that's a little bit uncomfortable for a teenager to speak to their parents about anyway. But um, I wish I had known all the things that dad was going through and had been through in the States because there were so many points that, you know, his identity was being threatened from his job. My identity was being threatened by what I thought was society at the time. Um, I think we would have learned a lot from each other in that moment. How did it feel afterwards that night? And how did it feel when you woke up in the morning? Was it different walking in the kitchen where you're looking to see how they would look at you? Or did you feel, you know what, we're now taking the first step forward? So the first moment, I mean, it, you know, they were both very, very supportive uh, at the time. And of course, we'll love you. Nothing has changed. Um, but for me, it has changed. You know, they're getting introduced to a whole new version of what my future looks like, and they are in the process of rewriting it. So I do feel like there was a little bit of almost felt like it was a tension, but it was also like a when you give some big news, it's kind of like a, a settling period. And I felt like I was in very much in that period. The fans had actually set up a, a family portrait um, to be done uh, the day after. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> um, not knowing, not after, knowing, yeah. Not knowing that I was about to come out, just thinking, oh, you know what, it's been a couple of years, the kids are looking a bit different. And um, we still have those photos. I look back on it, and even just the way that the photographer had composed the shot, like, you know, mom, dad, and Erica, my sister, were all together, and I was sort of standing off to the side. And it wasn't intentional by any means, but just, it's very much how it felt. I felt sort of like disjointed and like, all right, well, how do I behave around them now? So yeah, the next day, dust was settling. And yeah, there was that awkward forced to be family moment that didn't feel quite like family yet. We come back, Kevin and his son Alex do something that hadn't been done. That's a father and son sitting down and writing a book about their masculinity and Alex coming out. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC who have long believed that diversity is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. Their purpose of helping clients thrive and communities prosper is core to who they are as an organization. 
that is something that can only be achieved when everyone has the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential and speak up for inclusion. Diversity matters to RBC. At the time, I was really naked and I was afraid that dad would see my coming out as a failure. Not that it was a failure of my own personality, that he might not accept me, that he might not accept gay lifestyle, boyfriends, and I feared that I would be cast away. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guests today are Kevin and Alex Newman, a father and son, both struggled what it meant to be male. They reflect on the complications that society imposes on us and what it takes to create a relationship where both can learn from each other. Kevin, you talk about you kind of knew it. It was good that it was out. You said where you struggled a little bit at the beginning was with the community. Yeah, no, I was foreign to it and I was fearful. I had to accept that Alex had gone through a process uh, of parenting that did not involve Kathy and myself. That there were um, many people online that had brought him to this point uh, in his life and had helped him. And I was, um, I was no part of that. My reaction, and I'm not proud of it, was fairly fearful. I mean, I'd, I'd done some research, as I told you ahead of time, and the thing that popped up to me was the amount of gay youth and queer youth that um, attempt suicide in the process of coming out or shortly after. So that was sort of really prominent in my mind. I was probably homophobic about um, the that the community might want to take advantage of a, a young, coming out, good-looking man. That was not the case. <laughs> you know, if anything, they had um, they had cared for him. They had carried him, prepared to introduce him and make him feel better about himself. But I, I, I had the other worries. And then Alex, to his credit, um, I mean, he talked about how that was such a seminal moment where he is now um, driving the relationship that we will have with him from that point forward. It's 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 his relationship to define. I was a little fearful, maybe um, a little disoriented and hurt by it too. I didn't trust as much as I should have. And Alex, because I think he didn't trust that I was truly as accepting, and he was right, um, he knew I was accepting, hopefully Alex, you knew I was accepting of you and that I loved you, but that the community uh, I had struggled with. So Alex made it his mission to sort of test me every now and again. If he was with a boyfriend um, in a car coming from the airport, they were going to do a whole lot of kissing in front of me. And, I still cringe uh, about that. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, it's all good. No, it was all, and it was a, it was me knowing that you were trying to bring me to a place because you loved me, bring me to a place of um, complete acceptance and complete comfort. You know, it's interesting, Kevin, like, and I think this is important for the listeners because of, as you said, there's now, thankfully, this is becoming a little bit easier of a path. It's not a skip in the park often, but you know, here's your kid in Japan. You're hoping that he catches the eyes of the girls that are looking at him. And yet you go into the community and you want to protect him from the community. And I think that's so important for us because we get so caught up in our our biases and our stereotypes. But as you said, and I think one of the great lessons, Alex started defining the relationship. And I think that's where courage happens when a parent says, if I surrender to this, I think we're going to be better for it. How did the book come about? And how did you come to realization that as you were writing the book, even though you did most of the chapters independently, it was almost like one person talking most of the time? Yeah, it, I guess it depends on which side of the story you want. Because, yeah, the book was written in isolation of one another. We had a fantastic um, editor, Kate Fillion, who guided us through some of the more tumultuous sections where she'd come to me and say, Alex, you need to write more 
about this moment in time, it was always interesting because it's like, all right, well, dad has said something very, uh, very deep in that moment. And maybe I haven't considered it enough. So I'd have to go back. And luckily, I kept a journal as a young man. And so the, the memories were still quite, quite fresh. Kate was the master driver between bringing our narratives together and making sure that they line up. We went on TV together on Canada AM and did a little segment about fathers and sons and actually very much about what we're talking about today. And for a lot of the answers we were coming back with, we realized that, oh, you were thinking the same thing or you weren't thinking the same thing. And there was this lack of cohesion between the answers that we were giving. And at the same time, Twitter was blowing up with all these people asking more questions to us and wanting to know more about this story and saying, I'm so glad to hear somebody actually speaking about this. And that also sort of lit the fire behind, all right, you know what, maybe not only do we need to do some work together in probably the most intense version of, uh, of therapy over two years that I've ever done, <laughs> um, but that other people could benefit from from this discussion. That process that Alex talks about of, of writing in isolation, it's, it's, it's a fact. The interesting thing for the reader is they are the only person in the discussion that these two men are having that sees the connection until the very end, right? So it's an interesting, the third person in that dialogue is actually the reader. The moment when we read, we read Alex's last chapter and uh, Kathy and I sat uh, on the couch and Alex came to us because it was the hardest chapter for us to read. It was about um, how much pain uh, he had endured in the coming up process and, and in his life. And as a parent, you're aware of some of it, but to be able to check in on your child, you know, 10 to 15 years after, after they've had a chance to process it and can articulate it instead of just feeling it, um, it was hard. And then um, Alex and I took the entire book manuscripts and we just literally exchanged them in a in an empty office one night. And he read my story and I read his and um, it was beautiful. It hurt a lot, uh, not because he had said mean things because he was very gentle to me, but it hurt because I didn't fully understand how much hurt he had endured and, and gotten through. The reset at that moment in our relationship as two adults now, not as father and son, but as two men who had endured very similar journeys in different um, circumstances and, and different contexts. Um, it was um, it it was the one thing that I think any parent can benefit from. And that's, as you said, Tony, the, the power has to flip at some point. And if the power doesn't flip and you're still acting as a parent to your child at a certain point in life, then you're missing out on the opportunity to be able to um, assess and and reset. And I, I think that this process and that moment of exchange uh, was the great reset for two adult men that we could say, okay, I get you. You get me. This was two forward. years of burying each other's soul and trying to understand each other. Did that impact the whole family dynamics or were they just happy that this was happening because there was always that sort of elephant in the room between the two of you. We actually started uh, writing an early version of All Out that incorporated everyone in the family. But it became quite clear that the point of tension where all good stories lie was actually between me and my father. So we blindly went into this thinking that it was a story about all four of us. And it actually, it is. It is a story about the whole family. Um, so my mother's sketches, she's a, a an incredible illustrator. Um document key moments within our lives or within the book. 
But I think the most work that needed to be done and the themes that started to unravel of, right, what is masculinity and how do you actually talk about it and how do you come to terms with, you know, masculinity of different generations floated to the top as sort of the the main thread through what Kevin was experiencing through work, what I was experiencing in adolescence. Um, and so I think Mum and Erica understand that that was the piece that needed to be worked on more, but they were a huge component uh, of that journey. They were the support. They, I mean, I told my sister first, so, you know, I knew that she was sort of a strong point that I could rely on. Um, instrumental in the family unit, but also, yeah, the, probably the, the lesser challenge to overcome. Interesting though, but I think Erica, our daughter, um, I mean, you know, in a family situation, how the experience of the eldest is not the experience of the youngest or the middle child with her parents. So she did learn. I mean, she learned about life in our family uh, before um, before she had any memories of it. She witnessed a lot of it herself. So it was important that she, that she did read it and did understand it. But as Alex says, um, Kate, the ghostwriter who helped us with it, she very quickly said, like, um, these two women are saints. Uh, you guys have the problem. Uh, there's the book. <laughs> You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I thought I knew the right side of the story. But then once we exchanged the manuscripts and I was able to to see what was behind the scenes of, of Kevin Newman, which is a little bit weird because I'm his son and I, you'd think I'd know that. <laughs> uh, I learned a whole new guy. My guests today are Kevin and Alex Newman, father and son. Kevin, you know, is a journalist and Alex is a creative director in Australia. It's been eight years since you penned the book. Kevin, you're quasi-retired, but your LinkedIn following and your points of view on Canada and Afghanistan politics are really starting to build. Uh, there's a lot of people interested because you're not tethered to a news network. Alex, you've moved to Australia. You're a citizen. Interesting enough, one of my daughters is a citizen in England. One's a citizen in the States now. Hate losing all this talent, but that's the reality of what's going on. Uh, what's going on? Like, what's happening in your lives together? Like, is it, I mean, you must have got to a point where you went from this accordion that were really far apart and trips were even awkward to just smashing together. Where's the relationship now? Well, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, thank heavens we did the hard work while we were living together in Toronto because, um, you know, Alex has been gone for seven years now. You know, COVID meant that he couldn't leave Australia and we couldn't visit him for a whole lot of years. We haven't been able to continue building because of, you know, time zones and proximity because we have no shared experiences anymore. You know, I mean, we, we obviously communicate regularly and all the time, but there's no opportunity to hang, hang out for dinner. If anything, you know, I suppose that the, the gap over the last eight years has grown because you know, we, we haven't had proximity and we've lived in two of the most difficult time zones to stay in touch. I wanted dad to go first because uh, I was hoping we would land in the same space and looks like we have because I think relationships, I mean, all relationships take time and that is what we lack. Uh, we have this sort of sliver in my morning and Canada's evening to connect. And, you know, sometimes uh, the communication between us drops to just sort of the essentials and what's going on in the family or if there's a crisis particularly with COVID, really drove a, a wedge in between us where I returned to Canada this last year and everything had, had, had changed a lot. Like I, I was certainly different. I mean, I think just as people, we had sort of developed uh, more roots that sort of grew in different directions. So, you know, Erica has a son now and that happened while I was away. But yeah, I, I had changed too. And I feel like there's still some work to do 
particularly getting to know one another again. And And how about you? When you saw your sister's child, are you going to have kids? Are you thinking that's going to be part of it? Or I mean, where, where are you standing? Do you have a partner in Australia? I have a partner. Yep. Kids is a very deliberate decision, I think, for, well, for many people, but in our case, it, it is a, a deliberate one that's also quite, you know, financially taxing. And um, maybe within a, a couple of years can have that discussion. I mean, I'm not getting any younger, but... Um, Thank you for asking that, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I've been shy to ask myself. We're still holding back after all these years. <laughs> Advice to parents and children, whether it's bullying, sexuality, whether it's uh, somebody wants to pursue one thing in life and the other person in the parent wants you to become a lawyer or a doctor. Out of all you've learned, what can you tell people so that they can maybe take that first step towards understanding each other versus kind of just being voyeurs of each other's lives? The urge to come forward and just ask the question bluntly, I think by that stage, you haven't set up the space to make your child feel comfortable to be upfront and honest. Mum um, and dad did incredible jobs creating safe spaces in different different ways. Mum was very much the psychological safe space. She made it feel like whoever I, I decided to be, whatever I decided to do, she would be supportive. And she even would say that outright. And dad, um, you were very much the, the logical, the strong safe space. The one that we used to play this game as kids uh, in the community pool where... Uh, <laughs> We call it Daddy Station, and Dad would float out in the deep water, and he, we would always be able to hold on to him if we were afraid of waves or kids jumping in or what may have you. And he was always that 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 rock. But I think in Mum's sense, particularly when coming out, because it is very much a psychological process, I felt safer because she had set up this world where it doesn't matter who you choose to be, whatever you choose to be, you'll be all right. Create that psychological safe space for your kids to know that you're going to be okay with whatever it is that they bring to you, whether it is I want to be an artist or I'm, I'm trans or, you know, I don't want to do the career that you think that I should do. That open communication, that honesty is going to be the bridge. Kevin, you're good. Your dad left you. Your stepfather was an alcoholic. I mean, you didn't have that kind of mentorship where someone says, here's your safe space. So how do you advise people that are in a situation where like you were, I had nowhere to turn to? I can't out my son. I don't know where to go. Like, what advice can you give parents to kind of just breathe a little bit and think about their own safe space so that they can offer others? I think this is particularly for fathers, um, and it's to get out of your box. One of the insights that I I had, and uh, Alex has just talked about it so beautifully, is that um, generally fathers and men are the problem in the coming out process or in even, you know, any, any youth trying to strike out on themselves because everyone fears their judgment and everyone fears their wrath. And when, um, we looked at writing the book, I, I, I just did a simple Google search. How many fathers had written about the relationship with their uh, gay and queer children? And the answer in the English language anyway was zero. Before this podcast, uh, it's now 10 years after we started, I did the same search and the answer is still just one, us. And when we were, Doing the book tour across Canada and and in New York, um, there were there were no men who would come up, uh, and if they did come up to us, they'd sort of mumble, oh, "I got a family like yours," instead of saying, "I'm got a gay son or or a gay daughter." And, and women would buy our book for their men in their lives. I'm still kind of ashamed <laughs> at, at 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 my sex that you know even when your kids are on the line. 
you still stay in your comfort zone. You still stay in your box. You don't think to reach out. You don't try to educate yourself enough. You don't allow yourself to play, to have that power shift occur and let your kids drive at a certain point and teach you something that you can be coached, that you're not always the coach. We still have a lot of work to do. I always end my podcast with my three lessons learned, but I'm going to turn this thing around. I'm going to talk about my lesson learned, and I want each of you to think about a lesson as well. We'll end it that way. And the one that I am so self-reflective on right now, because I had a tough dad. I was a parent that left my, you know, a marriage is we are so consumed with our own journey in life and how other people see it. And I think what makes this quite amazing, and it took two years in your book writing, is that if we could just stop and look at the other person's journey and truly understand what's going on in their lives and how they think and how they feel and how they behave, we'd be so much better humans for it. Be more of a voyeur versus an exhibitionist. And I think you might see a lot more in this world. Alex, I'm going to pick you next. Of all of this that you've come through, what's the magic and gift that you've gotten out of this that other people are envious because they just haven't had a chance to experience what you did? I think it's the discovery that as a young person, your parents are more flawed than you realize than that the flaws that make you up make them up too. I mean, I think the what I step away from this with is the ways that I speak, the intonations I'm making, the mistakes I'm making, they are of uh, the man I was reading about in every other chapter of All Out and I'm, uh, I'm becoming my dad. Um, so even though we don't get to talk every day, I hear him in me and we are one and the same. It's interesting. Maybe that when you get together and it's not right to where you want it to be, it's because you're looking at the man in the mirror. And Kevin, how about you? That I could earn um, my children's love again after uh, working really, really hard, after working too hard, that if there was sufficient love and if I worked hard enough at that, I was worthy of, of their love still. We'll leave with this thought. There's only one book on this 10 years later. The world has got so much, so far to go on their journey. You're in, you feel like you're on step one. They're caught in cement. So I, I really appreciate both of you coming back and being part of Chat of the Matters because it shows all about people overcoming circumstances to chase their dreams, change their world and ours for the better. And I can't think of a better example. And honestly, I can't think of a better example than you two. So thank you. Thank you, Tony. Joining me today is Kevin Perkis. He's the VP of Fraud Management at RBC. The first thing I want to talk about is really the essence of this show, diversity and inclusion. In this show, Kevin Newman is coming to terms with his son, Alex, who's coming to terms with coming out. And it's both happening at a time where society is judging them for who they think they should be versus who they are. And I wanted to reach out to you because I understand you're a real advocate for both diversity and inclusion at RBC. And I wanted to know how that came about. Oh, well, first, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, and I have to say, I'm kind of humbled by that title. I, I certainly would say that diversity and inclusion is something that's extraordinarily important to me. And I hope that uh, in my daily activities, I do contribute meaningfully in some small way. How I got involved was I volunteered to lead our diversity committee within the operations component of RBC. And this really meant that it allowed me to contribute to an important cause, but also demonstrate visibly to other leaders and the more than 10,000 employees in this area that it really mattered to me. 
And then on top of that, you know, it really came home to me in a way because my son shared that he is gay. And, you know, as a parent, it's a mixture of things. First, I was very happy that he was uh, very comfortable to come out to, to my wife and I. Um, but at the same time, you're kind of scared because, you know, there's a lot of things in this world that aren't uh, quite so friendly right now. It really became uh, so critical to me even more so uh, to be involved and be that advocate. And I think I became a more visible ally after that event. And I think it's very telling to the culture of the company I work at at RBC that my first phone call was actually to phone a colleague uh, who patiently answered my questions that I had about how to best support my son. Joining me is Kevin Perkis. He's a VP of Fraud Management at RBC. And you've come out and talked about that the LGBTQ community is very often targeted for scams. Why did criminals target them versus other groups? First, I will say there's very little data available on this, but we do know that the community is impacted by fraud. And I think that uh, when a fraudster comes out, they won't necessarily know um, a victim's sexual orientation. But there's a lot of key factors that I think um, make this community a little more vulnerable. And first is that sometimes people that are in this community can face isolation. Uh, there's financial insecurity sometimes, depending on their personal circumstances or maybe what stage of life they're in. There's certainly discrimination, particularly in the older generations. When any of these factors come into play, an individual can be more susceptible to fall victim to a scam because maybe they don't have the access to advice and support from loved ones or other, other folks that can help. And this isolation can cause problems too because what scam artists will do is they will actually be looking for opportunities uh, where maybe, yes, let's take, for example, a romance scam. So an individual may make connections online using social media, dating apps, those kind of things. Another area where they could be victim is extortion. Maybe they aren't open, maybe they're not out. You know, a scammer may have or threaten to share pictures uh, that they may have with um, family, friends, and that can be another avenue where this community may find themselves victims. In this community, even when they seek help, it's quite possible they could experience forms of discrimination. And it may make people more reticent to reach out to support, um, to reach out to law enforcement or other assistance if they find themselves in trouble. So there's a few things that I think contribute to it, but that's why I would call out uh, this particular risk. Kevin Perkis, I appreciate you joining me on Chatter That Matters. And can I call on you again? Because I would love to do a show focusing on the emotional, intellectual, and financial impact of somebody that's been, uh, that's had uh, fraud committed to them. Be more than happy to talk again. It's such an important topic, and uh, I always value the time that we can talk there and get the message out. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.